everybody, this is Eric Mann on the new Voices from the Frontlines. Wake up and smell the revolution show every Tuesday at 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. to get you moving. A lot of you are already up moving, but we'll either help you get up or keep you up. I'm here with Channing Martinez, a co-producer and co-everything on the show. And we have a really exciting opening show for you. The first thing is we're going to have a guest, Junius Williams, who's an old friend of mine from Newark, New Jersey. He is an icon in the Black Power movement. I met him in 1965 when I was an organizer, and he was too, with the Newark Community Union Project. We worked together on the Ken Gibson for Mayor campaign, 1966. He stayed and continued that. He's written a great book called Unfinished Agenda, Urban Politics in the Era of Black Power about Newark, New Jersey and that experience. And we're really great to have Juniors on the show. Afterwards, we're going to have Emily Zamora, who is an organizer with the Labor Community Strategy Center and the organizer of Friends of the Strategy Center and the Bus Riders Union at UCLA. If you want to work with her, you can send her an email, as you'll see, at Emily at the strategycenter.org. Then we're going to have another new feature called Sing Along, where this time we're going to sing along with Jerry Butler, his amazing song, For Your Precious Love. I'll be singing along with him, and you'll be singing along in your car, in the shower, wherever you are, I know you're going to sound great. Then Channing Martinez is going to talk about the block party of the Strategy Center and Strategy and Soul on Saturday, December 17th from 12 to 4, and how you can get involved in really helping us build the show and the podcast. And please start now a lot of emails to eric at thevoicesfromthefrontlines.com and channing at the Strategy Center. That's eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. And that's going to be a really good show. So with that, I want to introduce my friend, Junius Williams. Very significant figure in both my life and the history of Newark. He got his BA from Amherst, his doctorate from Yale. We met as organizers in the Newark Community Union Project. He was the youngest director of Model Cities, can't believe, in 1970. He's presently director of the North, which is a political education program with the whole history of the northern part of the civil rights movement, and the host of the podcast, Everything is Political, which is a great name. So, Junior is very happy to have you on Voices. Very glad to be here. Always good to work with you, Eric. Tell us about Newark today, from your point of view, politically, demographically, what's happening in the city. Black Power did enter Newark formally and officially when Willie Rick made that statement marching with Stokely and uh, I forgot who the other person was who was who actually form, formulated that march. But from that point on, Black Power was officially in Newark when we heard it, even right. though it was already there, as you say. But when you fast forward to 1970, on the theory of Black Power, two things happened Gradually, but simultaneously. Uh, and I, I talk about all of this in my book, Unfinished Agenda, Urban Politics in the Era of Black Power, which has been out for a while, but people can still get that on Amazon. And we just the, ordered five copies for a bookstore, a strategy and soul bookstore. Well, that's great. That's great. 
two things happened. We, once we got the medical school to back off 120 acres and take 60 acres, we got 60 acres of land, vacant urban renewal land to build houses, which we then had to fight within the community to make that happen. The other thing we did was to make sure that the folks on the, the workforce in this new hospital and new school were black and brown, that there was a sufficient number. We said we wanted half of the apprentices and one-third of the journeymen. Well, we ended up with something called journeyman trainees, which I won't go into, but that quota was more or less met. So we were implementing the things that we gained from the medical school, which was done on a black power basis. The other thing that happened was the beginning of the drive to elect the first black mayor. Right. And that's where the United Brothers comes in, which was a uh, Baraka the Elder construction, which morphed into Committee for a Unified Newark, which was based on cultural nationalism. But now with Ron Karinga, right. at that time, Baraka and Karinga were working hand in hand. These were two organizations, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and there were some others somewhere else. But those were the two main ones that said uh, we had to go by the principles of the, the Kawaita. But to give Baraka credit to keep his eyes on the prize, he didn't force people to do that because he said the most important thing for us to do is to elect a black mayor. So it was his idea also to have a convention, a black and Puerto Rican convention. Whites were invited, right. but black and Puerto Rican was the main agenda. So we had things we wanted to see done. For example, the state had to pay for education. Uh, there, there was to be a citizen review board because the police were vicious and unwieldy. All of that was what we said. So this was the beginning of the era of the black mayors. Did Ken Gibson run on that platform? The ultimate winner, the man who came out of the black and Puerto Rican convention to get the most votes. No, he did not. No, he did not. Uh, there was, he had no intention of doing that. Right. Because he was not of that ilk. He was from Prudential Insurance. Uh, it wasn't so much Prudential at that point because Prudential, you see, that was a unique election because it was not fostered by, no, sponsored by the Democratic Party. There was no smoke-filled back room where Prudential and others came and put a whole lot of money. This was a people's election. This was done by the folks that we were just talking about, the people who were on the front line. We were the strategists. We were the, the army. This was the group that put him in. I know. So okay. he needed. Huh? I was there in 66. Yes. Yes. This was, well, this was later than 66. This was 69 into 1970. That's when he was elected. Yeah, but in 66, so, juniors, I'm just saying we're not disagreeing. In 66, he ran the first time and did great. And that's what gave confidence. Right. So keep going. The, the voice well, you're he hearing did. is Junius Williams, 
And he's the head of right now, he does a, a really great podcast called Everything is Political. And he's the author of Unfinished Agenda, Urban Politics in the Era of Black Power. Keep going, Junior. Yes, he did run in 66 and he lost. But it showed that black people were ready uh, because he got uh, 15,000 votes, I believe. That's right. And it, and he decided that, yeah, I'm going to, George Richardson was the man who put him up to that, thinking he was going to step in and do that. George Richardson was a state assemblyman at that point and had quite a record as an advocate. But George didn't believe in black power. So he was pushed aside. Ken came in believing whatever Ken believed. And for 16 years, he was the mayor. So what is happening now? I'm I'm answering your question with that history. Yeah, of course. It's great. But, uh, the man now is the son of the man I call Baraka the Elder, or Emir Baraka. His name is Raz Baraka, and he's a very good man. He has put together a platform which is, is really based upon the principles of looking at class and looking at race. Most of the people in the city of Newark are still black and brown. So the kinds of things he has done, for example, he said we're going to have a police review board and it will have subpoena power. Now, of course, the fraternal order of the police took him to court or whichever the police group was, right. took him to court. He won in the court, but the higher court said, no, you can't do that. And so now it's in the legislature to have that done, not only in Newark, but in other places if they want to but it is hung up there. He was able to, for example, there was contaminated water in Newark, really bad. And he was able to raise the money from the county and the state to fix about 2,000, I think 2,000 units of housing in about a year's time, which was Compared to what was happening up there in Flint, I don't think they even got anything going in Flint compared to that. So these are the kinds of things that uh, he has done. Now, of course, he had help, but he was he was sufficiently a politician to understand that this had to be done with the help of other people like the politicians from the state, the politicians from the county like Joe, Joey uh, DiFrancindo, the county executive here. But he also had the foresight to train young African-American men and women and Latinos to be a part in that workforce. So once that job was done, they can go do that kind of water pipe installation somewhere else. So that's where we are right now. We have a progressive mayor. People think a lot of him. And that's what I would say the state is totally different from what it was. 60 years ago when this experiment began. Can I read a quote from your book that I think is great about the United Community Corporation and the role of the poverty program? Yes, you can. Is This is one of your best lines. This is from your book. You're talking about, you said, UCC meetings and all meetings where black people were the players were like jazz improvisation. There's a theme, but once stated, everything else gets made up along the way. 
Oh, anyone might predict an ending. When and how we got to the bridge was anyone's guess along the way. Some of the most brilliant oratory and stage performances I've ever seen were played out on during the hot summer meetings. Thurman Smith was one of the best floor men I ever saw in action. When he started out a speech with one of these, well, I'm not very well educated, but kind of speeches, you just held on for a ride. One of Thurman's great gifts was the ability to sow the seeds of confusion and create delay. He would start out with one of his self-deprecating speeches, divert into another topic or ask questions to which there were no answers. His comments were either picked up on or picked on by someone who felt the need to appear important or hear himself talk, and thus the seeds were sown for prolonged discussion or resultant confusion. And what I think is wonderful about that is I was at those meetings, of course, and it was phenomenal that the poverty program for a moment did really allow the maximum feasible participation of the poor. And Thurman, who was one of my closest friends, and I went back and saw him in 75, what a brilliant, brilliant man. So beautifully written, Junius. Thank you. Yeah, that, you reminded me of those days. I learned a lot from the UCC struggle. That was the war on poverty, what right. they call the war on poverty locally, the United Community Corporation. I say also in the book that there was a difference between the kind of confrontational politics we were dealing in the street and the confrontational politics that was going on in the suites, or in other words, the office built the offices where these programs were going on, where we had these mass meetings or the smaller meetings as well, because we hadn't been taught, we hadn't had an access to the smoke-filled room right. before we were always outside trying to get in those rooms. Now we were in there, and there were a whole different group of Negroes who were parading, while the black folks were outside saying, let us in, let us in. Well, all right, we got in. So we had to fight the Negroes and the white people. Yeah. So that was that was quite an education for me. I maintain and retain those lessons today. Well, just to tell you that I want to thank you for the amazing work you've done in the all power to the long distance runners. One story I tell is that when the urban rebellion came, I was sitting at 212 Chadwick Avenue with Anita Warren and her son, Tony, and some of our family, and we were sitting on the stoop, and it was hot as hell, and then these National Guardsmen came on a Jeep, and they pointed like a, well, it was a machine gun or a rifle. They said, get the F in there, or we'll kill you all. And we jumped back into the house, you know, obviously. And then years later, I read the Kerner Commission report, but we knew it at the time. About 30 people were killed that way. And we came close to being one of them. So I think Newark was, for me, one of the most formative and transformative experiences living in the community and working in the community and just hanging on. And I'll just tell you my last Newark story, and then you get the last word, is one day I was going out on Saturdays, and it was hot, Newark summers, sweating. And these people were having a beautiful barbecue and I said, hi, uh, my name is Eric. He said, we know you. I said, well, you know, we're here to talk about the rats and the roaches. And they said, son, you can come back Monday if you want to talk about rats and roaches, but we're having some barbecue 
and Roman Koch, would you like to join us? And I said, I would really love to. So the, the hospitality of the community, the beauty of the community, and it's still there, and Ros Baraka and you are doing a great job. Yes, yes, yes. That hospitality is still here. That reminds me of something that I'm getting ready to do because Newark had the, the hospital, had the reputation for being very hospitable for people who were coming out of town who were some of the musicians, some of the great musicians. Yes. Uh, would be on their way to New York to play, but they could always find a place to stay and get something to eat in Newark when they were coming <laughs> up the road or coming down the road, for that matter. That's right. Uh, I'm getting ready to do, Eric, a history of that black musical experience in Newark. I'm raising money now. I'm going to do gospel, rhythm and blues, and jazz, not necessarily in any order but I'm going to show some of the people who were involved and how all of that music was influenced by the movement and in turn influenced the politics that we now know today. Well, that's a wonderful way to end this conversation. Junius, in terms of uh, what we both share, I'm in South Central Los Angeles right now and with Julian Lamb and with Channing Martinez and Barbara Lott Hollins and Akuna Uka, and a bunch of us and Emily Zamora, and we're still out in the street. We're having a block party on December 17th. We're going to have karaoke and dance contest and uh, food from Earl's on Crenshaw. Still doing mm. it. We're still doing it, Junius. In any way, I'll try to help you every way I can, as I always do. And we'd love to have you back on the show to talk about that project. All right. Well, it's, when, when it gets going, I'm going to call you and let you know. In the meantime... Uh, just tell your listeners to listen to Everything's Political. My podcast is up now. I'm running in the third season. Uh, instead of me giving some numbers, I'm just going to tell them to go to Spotify and put my name up there. There are some other people, some other pretenders to the throne. I can't say that. <laughs> somebody else is using every, somebody else is using Everything's Political. I don't know who was first. But anyway, put Junius Williams on Spotify, and you will come to the right one. You know the war continues, Junior. Nothing is easy. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to get our people to listen. Seriously, I've listened to it, and everything is political. First, a great title, great podcast. And Junior, thanks for everything. I'll talk to you real soon. All right. Thanks for having me. All right, my brother. Take care. Bye-bye. All praises due to the Creator. All praises due to the Son and the Son's Son. All praises due to the doctrine. All praises due to the leader. All praises due to the organization. So good morning, everybody. Welcome to Voices from the Frontlines. Wake up and smell the revolution. I'm Eric Mann, one of the hosts of the show and one of the voices from the front lines is Emily Zamora. 
who I've worked with since she's 17. She's now 67, so I've known her for 50 years. So, oh, you're, I'm sorry, 21. So I've known her for four years. But you're already what I call a young veteran, which is really great. We knew Emily from OG, which was a charter school, high school that we worked with. Then Emily has just been with us ever since, so she was at Santa Monica Community College, and now she's a senior at UCLA. My first question for everybody is, when did the light bulb go off that I don't want to integrate into the society, I don't want the existing narrative? Because you are a revolutionary, so the question is, it doesn't happen overnight. When was the first moment that something happened, book, experience, movie, conversation, that said, I think I'm going to change how I think? I think that the first time that came around in my head was literally my first experience with coming to the Strategy Center. I came on a whim with two of my friends who were already a part of the social justice club that we had at our high school, at Ochi High School, and we were doing a program at USC at the time, and they were just chit-chatting about what they were going to do in the evening, and they're like, oh yeah, we're going to go watch a movie. I was like, oh, cool. I want to go watch a movie. So I went along with them, and I thought we were going to the, to, you know, the Crenshaw Mall or something and watch the movie. We ended up going across the street to the Strategy Center, and we watched a, a film there, a documentary. And I remember I was talking about it with Channing um, a couple of months back, where I had actually written down in my journal, because I journal a lot, um, I wrote down in my journal how much that experience meant to me, because I had so many thoughts in my head and you know a lot of experiences too with the system throughout my life and I was never able to put a finger on it until I got to the strategy center and being able to you know watch this documentary and see the way that people were engaging with it and how there was community and unity inside of this room people from all types of backgrounds I mean what movie was this what documentary so I watched a film called The Symbols of Resistance. It was a documentary that we watched at the Strategy Center, and it was about the Chicano movement in the 1960s. And, you know, it really just showed me how community comes together. And, I mean, it was all types of people. I know it was a Chicano film, but there was black people in the room, there was Latino people in the room, and that was a really got my attention about the Strategy Center. There was so many people from all types of backgrounds there just having a good time discussing politics, and that was... That was what I wanted without even knowing it at the time. I wasn't able to put the finger on it until I started coming to the Strategy Center. Well, that's usually when the light goes off that you weren't expecting it. Right. Somebody said, read this book, Invisible Man, by Ralph Ellison. It totally changed my life because the basic theory is that white people can't see black people and they're invisible. So that book is one of the transformative experiences. So that's great. It was a film. Where'd you go from there? I mean, we always say, okay, now I am accidentally saw a film on revolution. It's influencing me. What life choices did you make after that? On the spot, I became a member. I asked, so how do I get involved? And one of the organizers at the time was like, well, you just become a BRU member and, you know, keep coming to the club at school and we go from there. And so that's exactly what I did. I put my money where my mouth was. I became a member on, on the spot after watching the documentary. And I started going to the, the school club ever since then. Well, I remember once talking about a speech I was going to give at the uh, Left Coast Forum. Right. And I was talking about sort of down with the white southern state, and and I remember you going, whoa, who's this guy? Like, <laughs> I still, you looked at me like, 
pretty good. Do you remember that sort of interaction, or what, I, what was the first time you figured out about who's this guy? Um, I think that was definitely one of the first experiences because I would come to the events. Ever since I went to the first documentary, I would go to all of the events that the Strategy Center held, and I, I knew that you were the director, and so um, when I would hear you speaking, you were always the most radical person in the room, and that was when I was like, that's, that's the person, that's who it is. So that was when I was able to put my finger on it, was through constantly coming through uh, to different events and always hearing the political line, strong, radical, revolutionary. You've been through a lot. You've been through COVID. Where are you now? Looking back, the young woman who saw the film and who you are now, just for our listeners to understand, Emily is in the leadership collective with Jenny Martinez and Barbara Lott Hollins and Akuna Uka and me, so if the FBI is listening, those are the five top people. Uh, we don't want anybody else to get credit. So how's it like to be 21 and to be in the leadership of an organization? It's exciting. That's definitely uh, one thing, because when I speak to people about what I do, their eyes are always like, oh, that's cool. I'm like, yeah, of course it's cool. It's what I do. It's a revolution. So honestly, I I think that because the, the in the process, like I didn't even know that I was transforming until, you know, you really get to sit down at some point and really reflect like I've come so far because along the line there were so many bumps and hurdles that I had to overcome and more than anything I am happy with the team and so grateful, right, that I have a, a community and a family of people at the center who have constantly helped build me up and every time that I've felt like I'm tearing down, these are the people who glue me together. So, uh, more than anything, I'm grateful to be here at 21, being able to say that I am a lead organizer at the Strategy Center, and I'm extremely grateful for that. It's very mutual. We're very lucky. I mean, I say to my wife, Leanne, all the time, I go into work with people I love and who, who have my back, and we have a community, and then based on that community, we're trying to take on this imperialist mm -hmm. system, and we're not overthrowing it too well, but we're giving it a hell of a shot. Tell me some campaigns you've been in. What are you doing at UCLA and are you building a base? That's my question. Do you have a base? Yeah, so at UCLA, we've had an ongoing battle with the Luskin School, primarily because the school has two big issues that we have alerted in our radar, which is one, anti-black conduct, and the second, which would be unethical research protocol. And the two are going hand in hand with the school. So I am leading a campaign on behalf of the Strategy Center on campus um, as the UCLA friends and staff of the Labor Community Strategy Center and the Bus Riders Union. And so far, the base is definitely being built. I mean, people are emailing, people are signing up to be volunteers, to hand out flyers, to help plan out future events, direct action. Channing and I have actually been going to a lot of the events with the organization on campus called UNICA, which is the Central American organization on campus. And so they are one of our supporters. And so we always go to their events and do a presentation and flyer. And so it's really being able to build community within the campus and having solidarity with those groups to be able to take on this demagogue, right? 
a middleman, right? That's the, the role that the school has taken on is a unprincipled middleman between the Bus Riders Union and MTA. And so that's Take a minute at. there, because that was great. At the strategy center, we have a thing called give credit where credit was due. That was your formulation, the unprincipled middleman. For our listeners to understand, the strategy center has a long history of fighting with first the Graduate School of Architecture and Urban Planning, which later became the Luskin School. We've had professors there write an article about the bus rides union, but without even asking us to be in it. And the only way we found out was the University of Minnesota said, do you have a picture of the bus rides union? I said, well, why do you want a picture to go with this guy's article? I said, what article? And then we met with this very well-known professor who we knew very well. And he had to show us, we demanded that he show us the text. It was a terrible article, and he was all big in spatial relations, and we said, no, it's racial relations. He was into his theories of space. But more importantly, the unethical issue is he felt that he could write about us back to Invisible Man as if we weren't there, we were just an object. So you've been doing a lot of thinking Explain about this Caltrans project, and why would you say the Luskin schools are unprincipled middlemen? So to tackle that question, the Luskin school, the administration was able to sign on to a contract with Caltrans to basically study the consent decree of 1996, which was won by the Bus Riders Union. And so in studying the work, it is very possible that they could go back, write, look into our work, and make suggestions um, for MTA, which the thing is that MTA has been very hostile towards us because we always call them out on their boat. And we've been doing that for decades. And so they are very hostile towards us. And so having this unprincipled middleman, which is the Luskin School, basically digging into the work that we've already released studies on and already released narratives and articles on is another way of putting the school in between the Bus Writers Union and MTA and having the possibility of saying, well, this is what the Bus Writers Union was fighting for, but it's not very successful. Why don't we implement more police on the buses and trains? Why don't we ticket the people more? Why don't we arrest them for more things instead? And so if you're looking back to study the work that we've done and you're going to write something new on it and you didn't let us know, what does that say about the intentions? It's not going to be anything good. And so in, in that same idea, if you're not with the Bus Writers Union, who is the most pro-black radical revolutionary organization that you will see in LA, and you could make the argument that in the United States, then you're not pro-black, which means that you're anti-black. Well, you know, after you graduate, I wanted you just to work with us. But you'd be a hell of a good lawyer. You got them already prosecuted and the only question is their sentencing. So great job. I mean it. It's really always a pleasure to watch how your mind works. And that's another thing we do here. I mean, Channing Martinez is here with me and Barbara and Julian Lamb. And when you talk to people, their minds, it's so interesting to watch the cognitive process of how people formulate it. But you're one of our best people to formulate the political line very sharply. And that's a great contribution that we need because for a lot of the younger listeners out there, there's a lot of encouragement to be reactionary without knowing it. I mean, to say things like, well, I don't want to be an organization because I have my own website of two people. (laughs) Or 
I don't want to be in a multi-generational organization right. because we young people know where it's at and those old people, and by the way, that includes you, Channing, now, <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> now that you hit your 30s. Uh, no, seriously, we, had, we once had an experience where we sent Cynthia Rojas and Deborah Oras to a youth conference, right? They had just graduated from uh, Stanford. There were two terrific young organizers. And everybody said, what are you doing here? You're 21, get out. <laughs> and they said, what? And so they wrote a whole thing. The strategy has been very critical of the concept of youth organizing as opposed to student organizing. Mm -hmm. Because students is a category. I mean, when I was in college, we did student organizing, but we often did it for the black movement. But we never have elevated the concept of youth Certainly not as an alienated group, you know, because that means, well, if youth is the oppressed, then who's the oppressor? Your mother, your grandmother, your teacher, which leads to, inside a black and Latino community, tremendous splits in the community right. because the strength of the community is its unity. It's yes. the unity of people of different shades of black, different sexual orientations, different political orientations, we're trying to get everybody to work together. So how come you don't have your own Instagram page, your own website, <laughs> your own branding already? You're way behind on your branding. Uh, <laughs> what makes you think the way, and this is important, you're finding some great students at UCLA. So when you talk like you talk, it's call and response, right? So. Tell us about the students that do understand what you're saying and where are they at right now? So the students that do understand, you know, the, the political line that, that we're putting forward with the campaign, they did have some questions at first. They did have some questions. Uh, just because there isn't a lot of direct action that happens at the school anymore. And that's also something that my, prof my labor studies professor has talked about too. It's just that we... And that we talk about at the center, too, is that we are in a counter-revolutionary period. So people are not always talking about what's the most radical thing that you could say, things like that. But when I bring forward those ideas to the students, like to the base who, who I manage at the, at the school, they completely understand. I mean, there's no question about it. They know that there's something wrong, and they know that something has to be done about it. Now, the piece that sometimes is in the air is how to go about it. And so that's where they look to me like, okay, well, I don't really know where to go with this, but you know where to go with this, so I'm gonna follow your lead. But they understand the, the core, right? The core issue, which is that there are human consequences to what the Luskin School is doing. And that's where the action is derived from. So we've even had one of the, one of the people who does the articles for the Vanguard people on campus write a whole article about the work that we're leading on campus because so many people at the school, even in the Luskin school themselves, don't know what the school is doing, what the administration has been up to for years, right? These patterns of, you know, the unprincipled middleman constantly, constantly showing up. And on top of that, just the anti-blackness in itself. I mean, if you look at the demographics of the school, black people are like, what, maybe 3% right. of, of the students on campus. So that in itself says a lot about how black people are treated and valued on the campus. So we are definitely getting coverage. And, and so the good thing about the article is that it allows students to get a view into the political line of 
the campaign, but on top of that, being able to see what their school is actually about. Is the article out already? Not yet. I'm still waiting for the editor to send me over the copy because they do want us to go over it um, before it's published. Wait a minute. They want you to look at the article about yourself? Right. Yeah, they're so ethical. They're so ethical. <laughs> what are we going to do about finding ethical people, right? No, it's so hard. It's so, that's great. You know, But one thing I think is really, you're saying so many important things. One is that often this period of counter-revolution People are depressed as hell. Yeah. It's not like they're happy. The young people, that you know, they're lonely as hell. Yes. Uh, alienated. So all the social media, looking at the phone all day, is because you don't want to look in the mirror. Right. You don't want to look at you because your life is really sad. Right. And so when you come along, the organizer offers hope. Because as you said, uh, somebody said a nice thing to me yesterday. She said, the thing I like about you, Eric, is you always have a strategy. I said, well, that's what we call it, the strategy center. <laughs> you know, it's trained people. So often people say, Emily's right, so now what is the plan? Right. And that's why we work collectively here. It's not a secret. To come up with a plan, it's not obvious what to do. You know, organizing is very complicated. And another thing I want to say to the students at Luskin, to the faculty at Luskin, it's not against you. It's against the institution. Right. When we sued the MTA, a lot of the board members were black, and we charged the MTA with violating the civil rights mm -hmm. of 500,000 bus riders. Right. So the CEO, Franklin White, was black. Yvonne Brathwaite Burke was a star in the black community. Richard Alatore, Gloria Molina, and these were the heavyweights. And you know, Alatore, who was very. So you saying I'm a racist? I said, no, Richard. I said, the policies are racist. He said, good point. All right, you got me there. <laughs> he said, I would have sued us too. Not that I'm your friend, but you, you, that is what I did to you. I did steal the money from the bus riders, and good for you. So we want to say to the people who are listening that the Strategy Center is interested in institutional change. We're not interested in scapegoats. That doesn't work for us. We're not interested, very frankly, with everybody resigning. I understand that's a theory, but I'm not saying it's wrong, but after they resign, mm -hmm. they, who are they going to be replaced with? Not Lenin and Mao and, you know, and Kwame and Kuro. You know, they're going to be replaced by themselves. So we just want people to listen to say, if you're at the Luskin School, how do they reach you, Emily? They could reach me at emily at thestrategycenter.org. That's the email I've been putting on every uh, post that I've made and all the letters that I've sent out as well. And listeners, so we'd love to hear from you on our new 8 o'clock time slot. We're very excited. We definitely want a multi-generational audience. We want people to listen to the podcast. It's on Spotify. That's absolutely correct. It's on Apple. Just about any podcasting site you can think of, we are now on. Just search Voices from the Front Lines. All right. So here's the thing that's important for this new time slot, and we're very excited about this, is we do not believe in simply listener-supported radio. We want organizer-supported radio. So the reason Emily is on is not to entertain you in the morning, but to get you to join the campaign. When Channing's mm -hmm. on, he's talking about no police in the schools, right. no police on the buses. We just elected a terrific mayor, and a lot of people worked for her. Mm -hmm. 
But we need more people to realize that as great, and I believe she's going to be the best mayor, I really am very hopeful I know Karen best, with a terrific track record. But Karen knows that the greatest compliment you can be given is Karen Bass is a great organizer. And what that means to our listeners is you got to get used to, I wake up at 8 in the morning, I have my coffee, I'm going to dance with them, I'm going to listen to Emily, I'm going to listen to Channing. But they're going to always ask me to do something. Right. The way we measure the work we're putting in is if Emily at the Strategy Center, Channing at the Strategy Center, Eric at Voices from the Frontlines get emails that say, I want to get more involved. And for the UCLA students out there and faculty, help Emily because we're going to win. What would winning look like to you for this campaign? What is it that you people want, Emily? So there are three primary things that we are trying to get out of this. The first one is to call for a public hearing, hopefully in January, with um, all the people at Leskin and UCLA in general, students, staff, If you're a part of the school, you are invited to the public forum um, to really bring out this dirty laundry that not just Luskin, but the whole institution has been, um, have patterns of putting things under the rug. So like writing articles on groups that have never even had any type of consent, right? A lack of transparency. And on top of that, I mean, the most important thing is the anti-blackness that has been pertinent in this institution. So if you have any type of political line that um, aligns with the politics that we're bringing forth, please attend the public forum. Numero dos. What's the situation? There is a contract between Caltrans and the Luskin School. What do you want done with it? So what we want done with the contract is to have it completely eliminated and to never have that unethically uh, produced study come out into the public because of its origins. So we are trying to cancel the contract. It is very possible that it is already, you know, gone through. And so if that is the case, then the next step is to have the study never be published because of the way that it was brought forth. And then your third demand... And then the third demand is to put the Luskin School on a one-year probation for its anti-black protocol and its unethical research conduct. What would that look like? Well, that would look like putting the school on pause. I mean, literally stopping the operations of the campus and really having a sit-down with these, you know, the staff, the people that are at the top, the very top of the institution, and really reimagining what the campus could look like. I mean, what Luskin could look like, because the way that the school is being organized right now, you could really tell that, you know, there isn't a priority being put forth for um, ethical research to come out of it. And so in, in that midst, you're seeing human consequences of, you know, anti-blackness coming out of the institution itself. Because at the very top, if the, if the, root, if the root of the problem is rotten, then everything else is rotten by, by default. It's funny, did you know that I was just going to use that, that, you know about the fruit of the poison tree legal theory? No, but I'm down to listen to it. because you just came (laughs) up with it. Back when there was a theory of civil liberties before the country moved to fascism, the fruit of the poison tree means that you go into somebody's house and violate their Miranda rights, or you, you don't have a warrant. But then you say, well, look, Your Honor, the warrant says that they had all this cocaine, it would be thrown out because you didn't have 
you violated people's uh, mm -hmm. civil liberties and civil rights, so it can't be the judge will say, throw it out. Right. So you said the same thing, interestingly. If the root is rotten, then the report's rotten. I have a question for you. If the students say, Emily, Emily, look, I mean, I paid all this money. If you shut down the school for you, what's going to happen to me? It's not always going to be about you. That's, that's the answer. That's the answer. There are bigger issues in this world to deal with than you having this little piece of paper. I mean, if black people are being attacked and have a whole genocide against them, particularly in Los Angeles, in Lumiere Park, where it's the last, like the last place where black people are really existing, I mean, your paper means nothing. You're a hard line, Emily. You found the right place. <laughs> <laughs> They're talking to each other. So Emily, it's a pleasure to work with you and you'll be a regular voice from the front lines on the show. And I learn from you every day and it's a pleasure to work with you. It's a pleasure to work with you too. And I learn like five or 10 new things every time I talk to you guys, so it's a pleasure. So that was Emily Zamora, part of the Strategy Center team and the people on our show are making history and we want you to make it with us. This is Eric Mann host of Voice from the Frontlines. Wake up and smell the revolution. We're going to continue the conversation. At the Strategy Center, we have a lot to celebrate. Join us on December 17th from 12 to 4 p.m. in our backyard for our annual holiday block party at Strategy and Soul. Strategy and Soul is located at 3546 West Martin Luther King Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 9008. This year, we're featuring food from Earls on Crenshaw, Afro-Cuban drumming with Richard Marquez, ornament making for kids from ages 0 to 99, and more activities for children. Check out our first ever billboard featuring Eric Mann, Barbara Lat-Holland, Akuna Uka, Emily Zamora, and myself, Channing Martinez. If you've been to the center, then you know that when there's food and music, we know how to bring and meld politics and soul like a fine piece of silk fabric. Did I mention a live DJ and karaoke? You don't want to miss this. Join us on December 17th from 12 to 4 at Strategy and Soul, 3546 West Martin Luther King Boulevard. Visit our website for more information and to RSVP, www.thestrategycenter.org. It's a celebration. Hey everybody, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. Wake up and smell the revolution. KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and streaming on the web all over the world, kpfk.org. A feature of the show, which we're going to probably do every week, is called Sing Along. And the concept is we're going to sing along today with the great 
amazing Jerry Butler and one of my very favorite songs, For Your Precious Love. Every week I'll pick a song that I like to sing along with. I think, you know, when you're in the car, you think you sound great. When you're in the shower, you think you sound great. And some of you do, but we're not going to do karaoke. So what we're going to do is every week I'm going to have somebody great. I will sing along with them, and then you can sing along with them at home because you know the song. If you're really good or think you are, send the link to us at Eric at Voices from the Frontlines, and we will play it next week. We'll certainly play at least one person. If you think you're great, go put it on YouTube and send us the link, and we'll either we'll do this, don't call us, we'll call you, or we'll call you and say we'd love to have you on the show, okay? So we're experimenting. I hope you're drinking your good coffee and jumping around. And with this, the great Jerry Butler for Your Precious Love. So hey everybody, this is another feature of the new Voices from the Frontlines. It's called Get Up and Dance. We're going to have a dance number every show. And the reason dancing is so important, obviously, is it's great for the soul. Now, I've been thinking a lot about people with disabilities, people sick, people with arthritis, people who can't even get out of the wheelchair. But 
we all know that our soul can dance. And if you close your eyes, you can get up and dance in whatever form you're in. Dance is amazing. It moves the body. So besides your coffee, we're going to wake up every Tuesday at 8 and let's get up and dance. I'm starting with one of my all-time favorites to dance with, Peaches and Herb, Shake Your Groove Thing. can do it get up move those feet if you're driving wiggle your fingers tap your toes shake your elbows shake your shoulders come on Just one minute left. Come on, get to it. Join us in dancing. Wiggle those fingers. To the new voices from the front lines every week we'll have a new exciting song where you can get up and dance and if you're driving 
as I said, shake those fingers, shake those elbows, shake those shoulders, wiggle your feet, wiggle your torso, do whatever you can, but get up and dance with us. And now, the end is near, and so I got to face the final curtain, curtain. friends, I'll say it clear, and state my case, of which I'm certain, I believe Thank you for tuning in to Voices from the Frontlines, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. At KPFK, we need your help. Call 818-985-5735 or visit www.kpfk.org to give a generous contribution to keep this show on the air. On Voices from the Frontlines, we need your help to spread the word. How many of your friends are listening to Voices from the Frontlines? Have you shared it with them? Have you sent them a text message? Have you sent them an email? Please go onto our website, www.voicesfromthefrontlines.com, or visit us on your local podcasting site to get the latest show and listen to it and send it to 10 friends. Only when we support our shows can we grow and build the movement. We believe in movement sponsored radio and organizer sponsored radio. So join us in our movement and spread the word in fighting for a movement on the front lines. Visit www.voicesfromthefrontlines.com. It's that word time. I'm sure you knew.